This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. You know, up until a few years ago, the only rock stars we had were, well, rock stars. That is, people who played rock and roll for a living and were amazingly popular. But in recent years, we've seen rock stars in a number of different arenas. For instance, in politics, Barack Obama is indeed a rock star. Sarah Palin, also, for about a minute... And in the field of finance, Warren Buffett can claim the title. And, of course, religion has its share, too. Certainly one of, if not the biggest rock star in this field, would be, arguably, the Dalai Lama. The late Pope John Paul II was certainly in his league, while the current occupant of the chair of Peter is inching his way towards the title as well. As we know from the music industry, in many cases, not being alive can be a great boost to your career. With this in mind, there is no doubt that in the realm of contemplative living, the late Father Thomas Merton is indeed a rock star. That is, someone who has reached legendary status and whose works are as fresh today as when they were written over a half a century ago. In the past 30 years, much has been written about this beloved Trappist monk who did a great deal in the field of interfaith dialogue, primarily between Catholics and Buddhists. Recently, a documentary of Merton was released and broadcast on PBS. Soul Searching, The Journey of Thomas Merton, by producer Morgan Atkinson, aired on our sister station, WGVU-TV, in December of 2008. If you missed it, you can be sure that it will be repeated at some time in the future. In the meantime, the program is available on DVD. Plus, the companion book, has recently been released. In it, you'll find interviews with a number of religious scholars and personal friends and colleagues of Thomas Merton. Please join us today as we have a conversation with Morgan Atkinson, who is the producer of the special and the DVD and is editor of this book. Morgan Atkinson has worked as a communications professional since 1975. In 1985, he established Duckworks Incorporated, a production company that creates independent and commissioned work. A resident of Louisville, Kentucky, Atkinson's primary focus is programming that examines issues of community and culture. He has had seven documentaries broadcast on KET, PBS, and most recently, the companion DVD to the volume we're talking about today, Soul Searching, The Journey of Thomas Merton. So we welcome to Common Threads, uh, Mr. Morgan C. Atkinson. Hello, Morgan. Hello, Fred. Good to be with you. Nice to be with you as well. Uh, so let's, uh, let's start from the very beginning here. Uh, so many books, as I mentioned a, a minute ago, so many books uh, have been written about Thomas Merton, and there was a documentary that came out, I believe it was back in the 80s, yes. uh, on, on the life of Thomas Merton. Um, and you mentioned in your book that you have a pretty good reason for following that documentary up with this new one. Uh, could you explain that? Well, I'll try to. Uh, yeah, Paul Wilkes in 1985 made a very good documentary on Thomas Merton, and 
the advantage he had was that most of Merton's peers and colleagues were still in the prime of their life. Uh, well, now, you know, it's been 40 years since Merton died, and uh, he still has students and a few peers still alive, but, uh, you know, they're getting older, and many are not in their prime. Uh, why I thought uh, that I could justify doing a documentary is that in 1992 or three, it had been about 25 years after Merton died, and in his will, he specified that his private journals could then be published. And so I had the advantage of access to all that material, which, uh, I mean, he never hid his humanity in his other writing, but uh, his humanity really came forward in these private journals. And in your introduction, you said that uh, he is uh, still fresh today. And, and that was another reason that I felt like, well, you know, this is something worth pursuing because I really feel that the things he wrote about and uh, felt so deeply are as relevant today as they were when he was in his prime. One of the people I interviewed, Sister Kathleen Dignan, said, uh, Merton isn't really a relic of the 60s. In many ways, we're still trying to catch up with him, and, and I, I found that to be true. What do you think the, the key elements of Merton are that make him so fresh today uh, and a topic of conversation in religious communities all over the world? Well, one thing that the later Merton did, you know, the Merton of oh, the last 15 years of his life did, was he spoke across boundaries. He was a convert, and like many converts, in the early stages of his faith journey, he was very rigid. And, you know, for him at that time, I think it was fairly safe to say that the Catholic way was the only way. But as he matured and deepened his spiritual journey, he he found great truths in other faith traditions. And so... He's, he speaks to people from not only many spiritual traditions, but many walks of life. Uh, in doing showings around the country, I have found people uh, that, you know, have come up to me afterwards and said, you know, really, I, I'm not a, um, a churchgoer at all, but I still find much... Uh, uh, much nurture and so much of what Merton writes. And so... Uh, Somebody asked me when I interviewed him, well, which Thomas Merton do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about the spiritual writer or the poet or the social activist or the environmental activist? Or I mean, there were so many dimensions in Merton's life that he wrote about in a very uh, rich, compelling way. So, you know... That's sort of the paradox and the complexity of Thomas Merton. Right. I remember my introduction to Merton was an introduction that he wrote in the late 60s uh, to an edition of the Bhagavad Gita. Are you aware of that? I'm not aware of that particular writing, no, but, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he wrote uh, one of the introductions along with, uh, get this, uh, a, a copy, uh, a new edition of a translation with commentary of the Bhagavad Gita. And this, by the way, was uh, by um, 
Bhaktivedanta Swami, the the person who brought the Hare Krishna movement to the United okay. States. All right, and the the two people who wrote forwards were Thomas Merton and Alan Watts. Uh, okay. So it, it kind of tells you what what kind of crowd he may have hung with around 1967, yeah. 1966. Uh, and so that was my first introduction. So this is who I thought Merton was. Then later on several, you know, maybe a couple decades later, I read The Seven Story Mountain. Two very different human beings there, it yes. seems like. Yes. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, in his later years, he looked back on The Seven Story Mountain and he said, you know, that Thomas Merton is dead. I mean, it's not like he was disowning uh, the feelings that he had, because uh, I think in his roots, he was still very much a Roman Catholic. But uh, the person that wrote The Seven Story Mountain was very much, uh, I guess, a parochial Roman Catholic. He, it was, this is the only way to go. And in it, he even would sort of cast aspersions at other faith traditions. Uh, he grew way beyond that. And in many ways, he... he he sort of not laughed, but felt some chagrin about uh, some of some people who might go or come across the Seven Story Mountain and say, "This is Thomas Merton." Well, it was an aspect of him, but it was uh, uh, not one that he would have found much in common with in his later years. I don't think. And yet, it still remains a classic. Yes. And a number of people, perhaps people who. Uh, are, are very traditional Roman Catholics still get a, a great deal of wisdom out of it for them. Yes, and, and I can too, uh, very much so. And, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a traditional Catholic, but I am a Catholic. But what I get out of the book, and what it was the first thing of Merton's that I read, was just the passion of this person about his faith journey, about his spiritual life. And uh, some of the, I mean, he was so ardent that some of it was a little off-putting for me. But if I can just, you know, sort of see it in context, in the context of his time, too, uh, it, it is a very uh, rich piece of writing in a lot of ways. And uh, tell us about the, uh, the social activist Merton, what were the what were the issues that that uh, really encouraged passion within him? Well, in around the mid to late fifties, uh, he became very convinced of, and, and he came to this through prayer and through his correspondence with other people, that it was very much a part of his vocation to speak out and to make his views known on the issues of the day. And that was in, you know, the midst of the, almost the height of the Cold War. So he spoke out uh, about uh, the Cold War, about the way that both sides sort of dig in and, you know, make their, their stands and leave no room for communication or dialogue between them. Uh, he was very much active in civil rights. And a lot of this... Uh, as far as the Catholic peace movement and Catholic activism, he was in—he was very early, and for a lot of his readers, this was very disconcerting. Uh, they were used to coming to this, you know, pious monk who wrote 
you know, these beautiful spiritual uh, contemplations. And instead, they were also finding mixed in with this some very fiery prose about the issues of the day. Uh, do you mind if I read a short part of a prayer that he wrote at that time that's no. in the documentary? Go right ahead. He says, uh, when I pray for peace, I pray not only that the enemies of my own country will cease to want war, but above all that my own country will cease to do things that make war inevitable. So instead of loving what you think is peace, love other people and love God above all. And instead of hating the people you think are warmongers, hate the appetites and the disorder in your own soul, which are the causes of war. If you love peace, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed, but hate these things in yourself, not in another. And so this was very, a very different tact than some of his earlier writing. And uh, it was upsetting. Uh, there were reports of some of his books being burned and, you know, uh, sort of people saying, hey, get back on the reservation. We're used to you as this, again, this safe monk. And instead, things he was saying really were making people have to consider the hypocrisy in their church and in their lives and in our culture at large. And what was his relationship with the church hierarchy? Uh, and I'm asking this question, uh, this is a career question, not not just in the 1950s, by, uh, but I'm sure that uh, you could answer from that point all the way on to uh, the time of his death. How, how did the, the bishops, his local bishops, uh, the, the people at Gethsemane, uh, perhaps even the Vatican, how did they respond to uh, to Thomas Merton? Well, starting at the top of the, the hierarchy, which being a good Catholic, I'm always taught to do. You know, you must work top down. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. Uh, but, I mean, as far as popes, I think uh, those that were aware of him, and appar- apparently they all were, uh, they approved essentially of what he was about. I mean, I, he was a very ardent admirer of uh, John the Twenty Third. Um, then, as it came down closer to where he had to deal face to face, or the more nitty gritty, like within his in his own order, the abbot general of not just his monastery, but of the whole Cistercian or the Trappist order Cistercians. Uh, he was a Frenchman, and at the time the French were uh, beginning to test their own nuclear weapons, and this French abbot was something of a nationalist. And so to have a monk in his order sort of decrying these tests uh, was not a good thing as far as he was concerned. And he had Merton silenced by Merton's abbot. And... Uh, uh, is saying you can't write about war anymore. You can write about peace, but you can't write about war. <laughs> and Martin, <laughs> you know, saw the humor in that sort of oxymoron or contradiction there. But uh, he he was a very obedient monk. Uh, he saw that as part of his monastic vocation, uh, in which obedience plays a big role. So he went along with it. Uh, but that book was eventually published a few years ago, as a matter of fact. 
uh, Merton's relationship with his own abbot, uh, the abbot who was there for the majority of his uh, monastic life, uh, was very interesting. It was the classic um, artist versus management type of uh, tension. Merton being the classic artist, and his abbot had uh, had his MBA from Harvard before he became a monk, and so they saw they saw the world in very different ways but uh so that that tension was something that was always there but they also cooperated in many ways to make the monastery you know a, a very uh, successful uh, that's sort of a loaded term when you talk about what makes a monastery successful but they had a lot of they had a lot of vocations they had a lot of uh they were um, prosperous in in the products that they were selling, like the food products and things of that nature, which in Merton's eyes wasn't exactly what a monastery should be about. But the abbot said, well, you know, if you don't have me here to sort of run the business, you're not going to have a monastery here. So it was that classic tension that you have. If, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and joining me today is Morgan Atkinson, and we're discussing a book that he recently released along with Jonathan Montaldo entitled Soul Searching, The Journey of Thomas Merton, which is a companion piece to a DVD of the same name. Uh, getting back to what I was just talking about, the, the, the church's response to Merton, you just answered the question from a, a social justice uh, standpoint. Now, what about interfaith dialogue and interfaith cooperation, particularly with the Buddhist communities? How did the church respond to him, or was it just business as usual? Well, um, initially, it was so far underneath the radar that I don't think that there was much furor one way or the other. Um, in the mid to late 50s, uh, Merton was corresponding with, uh, among other people, D.T. Suzuki, the great Zen uh, scholar, and uh, his abbot allowed him to go meet with him in New York City. That was the first time Merton had been allowed to make a trip like that. So in many ways, his abbot, who was tough on him in a lot of ways, was also understanding of Merton's need to to sort of uh, uh, water the garden, you know, to, to stay open, to stay fresh. And um, when he, when Merton went to the East in 1968 to, uh, well, what he was attending was a um, monastic dialogue of uh, Christian monks and Buddhist monks to just talk about the things they had in common. You know, and, and the, the abbot and it, Everyone in the church knew that Merton was meeting with uh, Buddhist people along the way. He met with anybody that had a spiritual path. Merton was happy to meet with them and talk with them. Uh, you know, he was so secure, I think, in his own beliefs that it it didn't threaten him to meet with somebody that didn't agree on some of the basic principles or foundations. Uh, he said, you know, you, you celebrate what you have in common and what you don't have in common, then you uh, agree to disagree. But in later years, it's gotten a little dicier. Uh, it's funny, about 10 years ago or less, uh, the, the bishops were putting out, the Catholic bishops were putting out a new catechism. 
in which they were updating some things, and, and they wanted to use modern Catholics as sort of models of the faith. And initially, Merton had been chosen to be one of these. And, but it was decided because of his uh, travels to the East and things of that nature that Merton was not a good role model for other Catholics. And so he was uh, stricken from the new catechism, which, you know, most people, well, particularly Merton admirers, find to be sort of ridiculous and, and sort of sad. I think it shows uh, some insecurity on a part of the hierarchy. So canonization is not in the cards anytime soon? I don't think so. Uh, He doesn't meet sort of the the classic definitions of um, of the, I think, the current qualifications to be a a saint. Uh, You know, if anything like that should happen, I think it will be hundreds of years down the road when... um, um, some hot-button issues are no longer hot-button issues. Let's talk a little bit about the making of this documentary. I, I'm sorry to say I did not see it. Uh, I hope to sometime soon. But uh, tell us how challenging was it to assemble all of the people who are who were a part of this? Well, the challenging part, I mean, honestly, was knowing when to stop. Uh, <laughs> because... <laughs> For me, it was a dream job in that I was getting to go around the country and interview people who knew so much, who either knew Merton directly or knew his life and writings through scholarship. And uh, this is a person that had been very important in my life, so it was just just a real treat to be able to go talk with these people. And... Uh, uh, I will also admit that I would often choose locations that were interesting locations. So New York City, of course, would be a stop. And then I went to Redwoods Monastery, which is nestled in the Redwoods of California, and, you know, stops along the way. So uh, I I had an embarrassment of riches. Uh, That's why I did the book, because I couldn't fit everything from my interviews into the documentary. And so... Uh, I, I was glad to have the outlet of putting so much of what they said in the book. Um, and just the variety of people from Father Daniel Berrigan, who's always been a, a role model and a, a real inspiration to me, uh, to just uh, people all across the country that you know, were just um, very interesting people. I always make the disclaimer that, you know, I'm not a Merton scholar. I mean, that's that's not my gift, but I'm, I'm a Merton appreciator. And what I hope to do is to take, uh, interview these people and try to find the essence of what they're saying and uh, present that in a way that is accessible to a general audience. And uh, that's what I hope to accomplish. One of the things we should say about the book is that it is primarily made up of uh, quotes from people who are in the documentary. It's yes. it's not really a narrative. It it's uh, essentially a collection of of uh, verbal essays that have been transcribed. Correct. Yes, uh, there is a, a sort of a skeletal narrative line of of my own where I just talk about. Uh, how the project uh, 
came up and, you know, what I was trying to accomplish. But just really just to set up and let people that know far more about Merton than I do talk about him at length. You know, for a documentary, for the, for the TV medium, uh, you, I hate the term, but it's accurate, you talk in sound bites. I mean, if you go on more than 20 seconds, uh, you're, you're stretching it. And, you know, that can be effective in, in a certain way, but in this way, I could let somebody speak at length and really develop uh, a thought or a conviction, and so I enjoyed uh, the privilege of doing that, or the opportunity to do that. The book is Soul Searching, The Journey of Thomas Merton. This is a companion piece to a documentary that was broadcast on PBS in December of 2008, and we're speaking with the producer of the uh, documentary and the editor of the book Soul Searching, Morgan Atkinson. And uh, Morgan, we are down to the wire for this edition of Common Threads, but we would so appreciate it if you could join us next week and we'll continue talking about Tartan. Well, I'd love to, and thanks for the opportunity. This is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Morgan Atkinson. Mr. Atkinson recently produced a documentary on the life of Thomas Merton. The name of it is Soul Searching, The Journey of Thomas Merton. And also recently, a book was published as a companion piece. The companion to award-winning producer Morgan Atkinson's documentary of the same title, and this work draws us into the geographical landscape of Thomas Merton's life in America, a landscape that was intrinsic to his spiritual journey, containing a considerable amount of rich material unused in the documentary. Soul searching is alive with the narrative of those who either knew Merton well or passionately care about his life and thought. Some of the people involved in the book, Father Daniel Berrigan, Rosemary Ruther, Martin Marty, and many others. Their insights are linked to the places from the Abbey of Gethsemane to the Redwoods Monastery of California from New York City to Christ in the Desert Monastery in New Mexico that both nurtured and shaped Merton. 
The picture that emerges through both the narrative and vivid photography is filled with provocative insights into the interior landscape of one of the spiritual giants of modern times. And a little bit about Jonathan, excuse me, rather, uh, Morgan Atkinson. He worked at, uh, as a communications professional since 1975. In 1985, he established Duckworks Incorporated, a production company that creates independent and commissioned work. A resident of Louisville, Kentucky, Atkinson's primary focus is programming that examines issues of community and culture. He has had seven documentaries broadcast on KETPBS, most recently the companion DVD to this volume. And Jonathan Montaldo is the co-editor of the book Soul Searching, and he has served as director of the Thomas Merton Center at Bellarine University and is a past president of the International Thomas Merton Society. We welcome once again to Common Thread's Morgan Atkinson. Hello, Morgan. Hello, Fred. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. Uh, last week we began our conversation, of course, on Thomas Merton, uh, a little bit of history on uh, uh, some of his books and some of his uh, his passions. Um, let's talk, and you deal with this extensively in the book, and you even referred to it last week, the humanity of Thomas Merton. It's so interesting when we, we talk about spiritual pr- people and we have to remind ourselves sometimes that they are human. Uh, and one of the things that uh, you, you bring up is, the, and, and I believe you get this from Thomas Merton's journals, and uh, you, it's, it's commented on extensively here in the book, and that is the fact that uh, at one point in his life he fell in love and was very uh, open about it in, in his private writings. Can we talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah, I think one of the, the real gifts that Merton left for us, I mean, aside from his voluminous writing, was that he didn't um, airbrush away his faults and mistakes. Uh, and to give tribute to his uh, religious order, they didn't either. They didn't try to hide this or mask this. You know, they, Merton talked about the human journey, and with all the warts and uh, freckles and uh, mistakes that we all make, he reveals them in himself and then talks about starting again the next day and trying to find a better way. And, uh, to me, that was extremely encouraging. You know, it was like, okay, uh, you can have a legitimate, authentic spiritual journey without being perfect. And, and so uh, somebody that is this wise and this profound, look how many mistakes he made. And so in many ways, that, that, that's been one of the main attractions for me. Uh, he did have a romantic relationship. Uh, he was 51 at the time. This happened in 1966. He was in the hospital for a back operation and uh, fell in love with his nurse, which I understand is not too uncommon. <laughs> uh, but uh, this particular nurse was uh, 24 at the time, so there was some... Uh, uh, a range in their age there, uh, but it was a pretty impossible situation. I mean, after he healed enough to go home, he went home. At this time, he lived in the Hermitage, which was still on the monastery grounds, 
and she was in Louisville some 60 miles away as a uh, student nurse. And so they had, uh, you know, it's uh, long-distance relationships are hell, I'm told, and, and, and this in so many ways was a long-distance relationship and, uh, in, in many, many ways. Uh, but they, they corresponded, and they got together a few times, and he would find excuses to come into Louisville, and they'd have lunches and things of that sort. And uh, it was a real quandary for him because he was truly in love, uh, which she, she reciprocated, but he also knew that the monastic life did not, particularly as a hermit, did not leave any room for this sort of thing. And uh, so, I mean, he had to make a decision. And, you know, from his journals, it, it's apparent that there were days when he thought of leaving his vocation and becoming married. And his father, John Deere, um, a great admirer of Merton says, you know, you must remember at this time there were 10 or 20,000 priests that had left the priesthood to get married. This was in the mid-60s. And so it was definitely in the air, you know, this whole, uh, what's the term, uh, zeitgeist, or if, if I'm not mispronouncing that. But uh, Merton decided after much tortured soul-searching that no, for him, the monastic life was the only way he could go. And uh, his journals at the time are tortured. I mean, a after a while, you want to say, "Oh, Tom, you know, get you know, get on with it, get over it." But it, if anyone has had one of these sort of fractured, uh, tortured relationships in their own life, uh, I think we all can relate. Uh, his, his abbot also discovered that this relationship was going on. And so the tension that had existed between them through the 20 years of their abbot-monk um, relationship really heated up here. But the, the abbot handled it very well and, um, you know, just sort of said, okay, you need to draw boundaries. And if you want to remain a monk, this can't go on. And so Merton did finally break it off, but it um, it was painful for him and, and for the young woman. Uh, we don't hear her side of the story, uh, and so it, and, and she is someone, you know, in our culture of celebrity, the fact that she has been so discreet about this for 40 plus years is remarkable. Uh, I mean, not that Thomas Merton is that famous, but she could have more than her 15 minutes of fame if she wanted to come out with a little tell-all book or something about this. But she has just remained, uh, you know, the soul of discretion about this. Do people do people actually know who she is? I mean, if you if you really did want to get a hold of her, do you think you could? Uh, I yes, I do think I could. Um, I did not try to. Uh, my guess is that she would not do an interview, no matter how well-intentioned she might think I was. I'd, <laughs> it's so refreshing to uh, consider this, but I think she might think, you know, this is private. It's no one's business but our, the, the two people that were involved in it. And, you know, that that's so rare today. Um, that was sort of my rationale for not pursuing this uh in that i thought you know 
if she's taken this approach for these many years, who am I to try to go, you know, stir something up? Uh, it, I mean, definitely it would have added to sales, I suspect. But, but uh, you know, I left well enough alone and um, with no regrets. I mean, I perhaps in some in, in her own time she may say something about this, but I'm not sure. Well, I think it's uh, it, it speaks to the nobility of you both. Are, are you sure you're American? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm very much Are you sure American, she is? And I don't know that it was noble on my part. I just think, well, in part, you know, uh, as a uh, documentary journalist, I've never been sort of of the 60 Minutes uh, mindset, which I'm not criticizing. And I'm not saying that they're, um, that they're like, the, like the, the National Enquirer, but there's a certain type of documentary journalism that that goes for the jugular, that, you know, regardless. And um, I've just never been good at that. And so um, this approach suited me better. From reading his journals, do you get the impression at any point that he was really free uh, of this, uh, forgive the word, infatuation or, or love well, relationship? Well, it's funny who you ask that. Uh, there are some, and they tend to be um, male members of the uh, Catholic hierarchy, will say this was an infat- infatuation. Look, you can see here in his journals where he's saying this about it, it's over, it's nonsense, blah, blah, blah. But the thing with Merton is you can read his journals, and what he might say on December 6th, he contradicts on January the 3rd, and I'm just picking those dates out of the air. Uh, You know, he uses his journals as a sounding board, and he sort of uh, works things out. And so what he might have said on the 6th, he will say on the 3rd, you know, I, I was an idiot to have said that. You know, that person is not that way at all, and I feel bad for having said it. Uh, yes, there are parts in the journal where Merton says that whole relationship was a mistake. What was I thinking? How could I have been so foolish? And then, uh, you know, and perhaps I'm just a romantic, but I think there are other things that lead, lead me to believe, and a lot of other people whose opinion I respect, that this had a profound and lasting effect on him. And while it wasn't like he was always wanting to rekindle it, he always valued it, I think, very highly. And he didn't have a lot of time to get over this. Am I correct? He, he met this woman in 66, and he died in 68. Yes, and so it was a roughly two years later, yeah. The relationship officially was ended in, oh, I think July or August of 66, and he died in December of 68. Wait, wait, I'm sorry, when did it officially end? Well, uh, roughly the end of summer of 1966. And and when did it begin? April of 66. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, so it was a whirlwind romance. I mean, it was three or four months. Understand. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and speaking with me today is Morgan C. Atkinson. He's the producer of the documentary Soul Searching, The Journey of Thomas Merton. And we're not only talking about the documentary, but the companion book of the same name, 
that goes with it, which is uh, available in bookstores right now. You um, you talk, of course, or or the people in the book talk a great deal about Gethsemane. Did Thomas Merton put Gethsemane on the map? Yes, I think in in most ways he did. For mainstream America, he did. Uh, I mean, frankly, not many people in you know of three hundred million people in America. I doubt a very small percentage have heard of Gethsemane. But but those in sort of the um, in the spiritual business, for lack of a better term, have obviously heard of Gethsemane, and I think that. Being his his home did elevate it, uh, and it, what he did and and what he contributed to greatly was drawing uh, new members to Gethsemane. Now he wasn't the only reason they were coming. Many came when he came to Gethsemane in nineteen forty in nineteen forty one. There was like seventy members uh, by nineteen. 50, there was over 250 and more coming every day. And his best-selling book, The Seven-Story Mountain, had come out in 1948. So, I mean, you, you could say, well, they're coming in reaction to this best-selling book. Uh, and, it, I mean, it was a blockbuster book. It was, uh, I asked somebody to, com- to make a comparison with it, and uh, a, a guy named Paul Ellie who is a well-known uh, editor and publisher in New York, N- not publisher, but editor, he said, well, it's, in a way, it's like the book that came out a few years ago called, An- called Angela's Ashes. Not that that was a spiritual book, but suddenly one day, uh, who was it, Frank McCourt, went from being this you know, obscure teacher to suddenly this nationally known writer. He said that's the way it was for Merton. He went from being this monk that no one had heard of to this nationally, internationally known monk. And his reputation and the way he wrote about Gethsemane drew a lot of vocations. But someone else points out, hey, this is right after World War II, when there was a lot of uh, disillusioned soldiers coming home from World War II. You know, for many, it was this victorious, joyous time, but for others, it was this time of soul-searching, of there's got to be more to life than this, you know, this horror that they had just seen. And there were many vocations that came after the war uh, for that reason, searching for something beyond just the American life at that time. Uh, so in, he helped make Gethsemane known as a, a spiritual center uh, that went ahead and and spawned, if I can use that term, six other Cistercian monasteries, daughter houses. They became so crowded that they said, okay, we'll, we'll set something up in Georgia. We'll set something up in South Carolina, California, Utah. And so they were spreading across the country. You talk, in part due to him, but not totally. In the, in the book, you, you talk about the, the geographical life of Thomas Merton and how uh, he lived in New Mexico, he lived in California, he, he lived in Kentucky. Do these, do these locations represent certain elements of Thomas Merton? You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I've, again, a 
a uh, would-be author's confession, I sort of constructed that device of this geography to sort of try to fit the themes in the book that I was trying to present. I mean, because actually he might have spent three weeks of his life in New Mexico and California out west. He spent a great deal more time in, in New York. But what I started out in New York because that's where his student life was. He went to Columbia and then taught at St. Bonaventure. And it was in that life that, that I wanted to show sort of the, uh, a young man that was very worldly, uh, almost manic in his activity. I mean, he was into everything, very bright, very intellectual, very much a ladies' man, very much a partier. And so that seemed to fit in New York City. And then he came to Gethsemane uh, in rural Kentucky to this mirror opposite of his life in New York City. I mean, he went a very austere life, very regimented. You know, you're up at 2.15 a.m. and you live your day and then you go to bed at 7 p.m. I mean, <laughs> a, real, a real turnaround from the time in, in New York. And then when he went west, uh, he sort of went west to go east uh, because when he traveled to Bangkok in the east, he went by going west. It sort of shows the way that he was always going deeper, going further, trying to explore uh, his spiritual life more deeply. I mean, he was not one who, though he was rooted in his deep convictions and within the Catholic tradition, he didn't want to have Pat settled answers. He, you know, somebody who wrote a great book about him, uh, Sister Elena Mallett, calls him a spiritual explorer. And it wasn't like he was a thrill seeker, but he was always wanting to push deeper and not just accept, you know, conventional wisdom. Um, you know, he did not see religion as something that you use just for comfort. So, I mean, he found comfort in his religion. He found religion to be something that really challenged you and, you know, challenged you to live up to these convictions, to live it authentically. And that's, uh, some people said, God, he was so restless. You know, what's wrong with him? Was he neurotic? Well, I think he would admit to some, uh, some of that in his life, but he was also just a authentically hungry spiritual person who was just always searching. To afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted is, yeah. is one way that I've, yes. I've heard it. Yeah. And what, in his journals, what do we find, if anything, about his relationship to the Catholic Church as an institution? Is he critical at all? Uh, does he avoid any, anything, uh, anything that might be considered critical? Well, I think, uh, you know, he was... He was critical of any institution or hierarchy that would uh, either condone or perpetuate injustice or um, inhumanity. And, you know, I think he could see that as within, with any huge institution, there were areas in, within the Catholic hierarchy where that could happen. But, uh, you know, uh, I... I'm not familiar with any, with many writings beyond just, you know, asides and grumblings about censorship sometimes or, or just, you know, just bureaucracy. Where 
I think that with the, you know, he was at one with the heart of the church, uh, but I think he also had misgivings about um, any time we get too bureaucratic or institutionalized. Uh, uh, last week you mentioned his meeting with the Dalai Lama, or you know. The, uh, that, that, that they did meet. And initially, he had been resistant to that. You know, he had said to someone who was arranging the meeting, you know, no more pontiffs. You know, like, I don't want to meet the head people. I want to meet the people sort of in the trenches that are, li- that, are li- that are living the life. And this intermediary said, well, you know, the Dalai Lama is not like that. He's not a pontiff. He does not come across that way. And in their meetings, they did find great rapport, and you know what was supposed to be one meeting, I think, evolved into like three or four, and they, you know, in, a, in the space of a week, formed a real friendship. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the the Dalai Lama said, "Thomas Merton showed me, taught me what it meant to be a Christian," and so uh, I think that's a real compliment there. Yeah, that is a very powerful statement, and. Um what do you see today as the legacy of of Thomas Merton? Uh, it, to show you where I'm going with that, uh, um, a couple of examples that come to mind. For instance, in in the Catholic tradition, the uh, the um, what do I want to say? The not the the idea or the the movement. That's the word I'm looking for. The movement of say centering prayer, um, of of more contemplative. Um, uh, activities that take place in parish churches and and Catholic centers and retreats. Would you say that that Thomas Merton was somehow at least partially responsible for that, or has that been going on all along and I just didn't know about it? Well, I mean, I, I think Merton was one of several people. Um, Tom, I think that Thomas Keating who is known is so associated with centering prayer could be certainly in that number people that you know that tapped or that people that were accessible to sort of the general public about the spiritual life uh merton one of the great things that he did and was the only reason that i could find him accessible was that you know he said that the spiritual life the contemplative life was for anyone. It wasn't just for specialists. It wasn't just for priests and nuns and monks cloistered away in monasteries. Anyone could have a spiritual path. You know, he demystified <laughs> the mystical approach, <laughs> if you can say that. I mean, he said, uh, not only can you do it, you have no excuse not to do it. And so while you may not, you know, a Trappist monk goes to church seven times a day, well, you know, we can say, well, I can't go to church one time a day, so how can I have a spiritual journey or spiritual life? You know, he said, in your life there are things that you can, you know, you can make sacred. Uh, one of my favorite interviews was a nun who knew him, and um, she lived, she still lives in the Redwoods in, uh, in, uh, Cali- in California. She said, he took the mundane, everyday life, and the sacred, and showed how they could be combined, how they were combined in many ways. Another uh, monk 
who lives in the Redwoods now, but who was a student of Merton's, said to me, you know, you're asking me about the strict, obedient life that we live. Well, you look at your life, and you're obedient, and it's strict in many ways. You know, you have to pay your mortgages. You have to get up at 6 to be at work at 7.30 or something like that. You, in your own way, you too have these uh, these obediences that you're going through. And so uh, Merton was, I mean, he has some writing that I can't penetrate. It's too, it's out of my uh, in, 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 in intellectual grasp, I guess. But uh, there is so much that he wrote that was sort of in the mid-range that I can't find accessible that is just about the human journey, uh, the human search for meaning. And that's what Merton was so good at writing about. Morgan, uh, do you have a website? I neglected to ask you that last week. Do you have a website that uh, talks uh, about soul-searching? I do. It's uh, morganatkinson.com. And uh, some people misspell my name or can't find it through that. They can just go to tommerton.com, and that's a page that will lead them to my website. Okay, very good. Uh, Morgan, we are uh, done for this uh, half hour, but I want to thank you so much for your contribution both today and last week. It's uh, wonderful, and I enjoyed the book, and I hope to see the uh, documentary sometime. Well, it's been my pleasure, Fred, and uh, best of luck with your good work. It, It needs to be done. Well, thank you. Today we've been speaking with Morgan Atkinson about his documentary and the book Soul Searching, The Journey of Thomas Merton. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again next week right here on Common Threads. This is WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.